Welcome to the 29th episode of the Game 4 podcast. In this episode, still recording from home, we will be joined by our guest, Terry Latorco from Renegade Game Studios. I'm Adam. I'm Matt. And we've also got Terry Latorco with us. Hello. How are you doing? Fine. How are you doing? Doing doing well, doing you know, great. all things considered. Not going to conventions and stuff. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, you, Terry and I have known each other for a good long time, initially through kind of YouTube and stuff like that, and then just kind of back and forth seeing each other at conventions in the industry. And so we wanted to have her on to talk about, um, you know, like how she got into the industry, how she got into gaming, how she's, you know, where she wants to see it kind of go and that kind of stuff and talk about things like, you know, inclusivity and diversity and, and all kinds of different things like that, because, it, you know, the industry, there's just a lot of talk about it right now. And um, we think it's uh, time for it to be better. So that's part of what we'll talk about today. Um, but to start, we'll talk about what we've been recently doing in our hobby stuff. So Matt, do you want to, what have you been doing in the hobby lately? Sure. So yeah, uh, I've been uh, playing D&D. It's mm-hmm. still going on, uh, but I almost killed the group off last night. So that was an oops. It was kind of one of those battles that you don't think is going to be that bad. And then <laughs> kind of like halfway through, everybody, you could tell that while they were kind of saying, oh, we've got this, you could tell they were starting to get a little nervous. So, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, almost killed the group. Um, it was okay because that particular scenario, there was a out on my side that I just didn't let them know that there was an out. Um, so... It was kind of fun because I I wasn't as worried. Like if I you know supposedly killed them, there was a way for me to kind of still keep the campaign going. But yeah, uh, yeah it was interesting watching them kind of get nervous. You know, for the first time really. Like we've had you know a member go down here and there, but when you start talking like two or three members and people that can't move and the bad guys didn't seem like they were really being affected. Yeah, it was it was fun. <laughs> did you have to? Did you have to like modify? dice rolls did you have to tweak things a little bit or did they actually pull it through themselves i didn't really pull the punches too bad there was at the very end um there was one thing i could have done but um i don't think it really would have affected it it just would have dragged it out longer and we were already like three hours in so (laughs) i was i i kind of did it for a time sake um because it was kind of like they finally had done one thing that really kind of turned the tide back in their favor so i I let it go, and yeah, I didn't really have to modify, but yeah, I was rolling crazy silly good as well. So I was rolling DM dice finally again. So it's always the worst. Like, yeah, eighteens, nineteens, twenties. Oh no! <laughs> That's never yeah. good as a player to hear those dice uh, land like that. No, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's a couple times I would laugh, and they're like, "Oh no!" <laughs> like, oh yes. Oh. <laughs> it's never good when DM chuckles. Yeah. We, uh, my DM uh, had for a little while. We got him some like their they're like light up dice when they'd hit a 20 they would light up and oh wow it was bad because behind the screen it looks like a disco party and you know it's gonna be bad so it's just like oh no <laughs> yeah, why did you do that <laughs> why why yeah and what else have you been doing matt uh, uh i have uh decided to get into uh a new 3d printer and this time it's a resin so rather than like a filament additive process the resin mm-hmm. Uh, printer I'd, I picked up, um, ordered it late last week. Um, it was basically what happened was uh, I had tickets to see a show um, this summer. Um, I got them from my mom for Christmas. 
and they finally came around to canceling it officially. So mm-hmm. uh, she, she got the refund and wanted me to use it for something of my own. You know, I was not allowed to use it for bills or anything like that. <laughs> sure, so I yeah. was like, okay, what am I going to get? I'm like, oh, this would be a good time to get the printer. So, yeah, I ordered it and actually got it really fast. So I got it in yesterday. I uh, haven't printed anything for myself yet, but did get some uh, test prints done already. So yeah, you were saying that you were, you were telling me you were thinking about ordering it like on Thursday last week, and then you mm-hmm. mentioned that you already are printing stuff. And I'm like, when did you get it? And he's like, oh, you're yeah. like, oh, it rolled in on Sunday afternoon or Sunday morning, I'm assuming. Probably. Yeah, because for that's crazy forever, fast. Yeah, forever like uh, 3D printed stuff. You know, once COVID stuff hit, it's like you know two three week lead time. It seemed like so. Oh, yeah. I was like, okay, I'm going to order it. And, it was, you know, next thing I know, I'm like, oh, it's going to be here already. And in fact, I even got like the, the resin stuff came like on Saturday. So it was like the next day almost. Oh, wow. That's like so, the that's best. Fast. It's not even Christmas in July yeah. at that point. Like, that's amazing. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's a little early. Yeah. Christmas in yeah. July has come early. Yeah. No, that's, that's very <laughs> cool. Yeah. And I'm, I'm interested. I've, I, I've, I, I don't know when, when resin printing first came out, I was a, a bit wary of it because I talked to a bunch of people and this is earlier part of resin printing and just the smell could be really bad and it was real messy and sticky and you had to use alcohol yeah. to, uh, to clean the stuff. But now they're using, there's like water washable resins. They're putting, yep, and that's what I um, ended up getting, uh, carbon, uh, uh, air filters inside so that they help get rid of the smell and stuff like that. Yep. Um, yeah, that's really that's really kind of yes. nice. I'm, I'm, yes. I'm becoming more as, and more interested. Yeah, it's not as crazy. Yeah, because I was starting to watch YouTube videos after I ordered it, and I'm like, oh dear, like uh, this might have been a little bit more than what I was ready to do. But you know, then I started watching one specific to my printer and the type of resin I was using, and it was like, we still recommend some of this stuff, like wearing gloves and stuff. But you mm, know, it's certainly. not really like a you're gonna kill yourself if you don't. So. Yeah, 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 now's not but not yeah. the time to be trying to buy a mask either. So like, no, that's oh, right. Yeah. That's the, that's the thing that's that's weird about the the 3D printing hobby is that a lot of like the stuff that was the you know here's the cheap stuff, here's the stuff you know the supplies and stuff that were dirt cheap. Like I was telling uh, Adam, I think earlier today, like your your IPA like uh, cleaning alcohol solution uh, you used to be able to alcohol. buy like yeah, you used to buy buy like a you know like a six pack for 20 bucks or something like that it was dirt cheap mm-hmm. or you could run down to walgreens yeah now good luck finding it and you know especially you know i've seen some that are like 15 dollars for a bottle it's you know oh, so that was another reason why the, getting the water soluble it's i think cheaper. that stuff was being used for um people started using it to make their own uh, hand sanitizer i think yeah and disinfectants yeah. and stuff like that mm-hmm. so yeah, there, so I'm like, okay, well, that, you know, the water soluble, that was another benefit was that I could clean it with water. I didn't have to have a whole tub of, of cleaning solution and stuff like that. So, yeah. I've had a couple yeah, of like friends send gloves, me some prints. Yeah. And I'm really pretty impressed, honestly, with the, um, the different, like the quality, like the, the details is astounding. A friend of mine down in Milwaukee sent me a, because he knows I like Fishman. He found a, a Fishman STL through one of the Patreons that he follows, where he basically every month you just get a whole bunch of STLs. And he uh, he printed it out and sent it to me. It's it's spectacular. I glued it actually this weekend. So I'm looking forward to painting it. Oh, nice. I'm afraid yeah. Yeah, like the, the 3D printing is like a, it's like a whole like Alice in Wonderland world to me like i'm just like if i get in it's gonna be too scary i'm i'm trying to be strong for my own like it, hobby time because it's such a yeah such a vast it becomes another hobby. Of hobby yeah yeah 
Yeah. So yeah, it's not just like oh, I bought another a new a new tool that I can use to hobby. It becomes basically almost like a secondary hobby. Yeah, and I was like, oh, well, this isn't going to be so bad. I can, you know, I'm I'm familiar with the slicer already. Well, it be, it uses a different slicing program, so I was I'm mm-hmm. trying to learn that now. And it, it, to, to be fair, though, the resin one so far is simpler. Like, there's a lot less to it. Like, uh, like leveling your bed, it's like an art form on you know a filament printer. For this, it was you know like to the point where I was like, it can't be all I have to do. And I was like, nope, that's all I had to do. Okay. I, I do wonder if maybe almost like as far as the technology is concerned, they're they're taking a look at it. And I don't want to say that like filament printing is going to go away because it's certainly not. But I do wonder if the idea is like if we can just make resin printing not only higher detail, but also completely easier, you know, then more people would buy them. And the Lord knows they've become quite a bit cheaper. Like when I first thought about a resin printer, they were forty five hundred dollars. And now yeah. you can get resin printers for three hundred, four hundred dollars. Less, you know? less than that. So I paid. I've, I've did the, the pro version because I wanted the carbon filter and some other like mm-hmm. uh, stuff that came with this one, um, and it was two ninety. And you could have no gotten the way. one with, without the bells and whistles for two forty. <laughs> That's, wow. That's dangerous. Crazy. Qual- That's <laughs> quality wise, yeah. there's no difference between the two forty and the two ninety. It was just. Like I wanted the seal and like the USB plug was on the front. So it was going to work out better for how I wanted to like set it up and stuff. But yeah, yeah, no, yeah. I can totally understand that. It's so 300 to point. Yeah, it's cheaper than when, when I bought my Ender Pro and I thought the Ender Pro was a good deal. And yeah. like I said, like uh, from me unboxing to me printing was about 20 minutes. Where I think the filament, I mean, it was a couple <laughs> hours. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's yeah. dangerous. That's so dangerous. No, I know. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's crazy. I mean, it's not it's not plug and play yet, but man, is it? I mean, leaps and bounds getting there. We're we're, we're gonna have uh, you know the Star Trek replicators before we know. <laughs> and you know, like when we get this, when we get these like amazing plug and play uh, resin printers, paper printers are still gonna suck just as much as they do now. <laughs> Like oh, you'll, you'll be like, you'll, pr- you'll print to it and it still won't work or it'll be PC load letter or who knows what. But I'll be like, yeah, but I could print out like an entire three-dimensional object in like, you know, 20 minutes or whatever. I mean, I obviously nowadays the printing time takes longer, but still paper printers will always be terrible. And I don't know why. It's, it's, it's we'll be printing theory, our own crappy paper printers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That'll be printing new parts to make our paper printers work better. Yeah. What What else you got going on? Have you been doing anything besides the printing and the nearly killing everybody um, in your group? I'm get, getting ready to do more hobbying. I finally like finished the bar basically this weekend, so I was able to like all the tools and work horse, saw horses and mm-hmm. mess that was downstairs and taking over my room. Like I had you know plastic covering stuff and stuff pushed to corners. That's all gone and cleaned up now. So. Yeah, I think I can finally start maybe, you know, building and painting again, just, you know. But yeah, I did, I did a bunch there. of that this this weekend, actually. Yeah. Think, so uh, what have you been up to? Yeah, well, so I um, so I got my hobby streaming Twitch setup thing figured out uh, to the point now where on Friday, this past Friday and Saturday, I was part I was on the main stage for the virtual gaming con, which is put on by um, Board Game Geek and Dice Tower. And it was a oh, yeah. online virtual, uh, you know, tabletop gaming convention. And I was streamed on Friday morning from 11 a.m. Central to 1 p.m. And also on Saturday from 11 to 1. And nice. I basically was just teaching folks to you know, like how to paint their 
board game miniatures. Like there's so many different board games that come with so many different miniatures. So I want, you know, mm. I, I was basically aiming towards the folks who are, I have all these miniatures I've never painted before. I don't know if I could do it. So it was all about me trying to show you, this is the, the you know, the easy way to do it. This is the, the simple techniques. This is the stuff you need to know, you know, explained about a priming, explained about base coating, you know, dry brushing, some washes. That was about it. Um, I did, nice. uh, I worked on, what did I work on? On Friday, I did some of the Foot Clan that came in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles game uh, oh, from yeah, a couple yeah. years back. Um, and then on Saturday, I painted a bunch of um, kind of uh, machine gun, gas, was- gas mask wearing bad guys uh, from the Hellboy uh, board game from Ooh, Mantic. You got that sort of painting? Oh, nice. So, yeah, I, I just went through and just showed like different techniques. Like I primed them all. I primed five of them black. And then on two of them, I dusted them from above with like a gray spray paint to kind of get like kind of a zenithal highlight. But then I didn't mm-hmm. do it on the other one so I could show the differences between the two. And then I used basically, actually, Terry, you're the one that, that told me about the uh, giant uh, makeup dry brushes and stuff like that. And I used one of those big wow. concealer brushes to actually, instead of instead of spraying the gray down from above, I used one of those brushes to put gray on there and then show the difference between, well, this is what the spray looks like. This is what the dry brush looks like. And then nice. finish the models from there. And it was I great. I love that like, makeup I'm, brush thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's the, I, it's I, the best. I ordered it. I got you know strange <laughs> questions because I forgot to tell my wife why I ordered it. She's like, hey, you got something. And what is it? I'm like, it's a giant makeup brush. She's like, just gave me that look like, okay. I'm like, it's for painting. She's like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, it was, it's, it's really, it, it's spectacular. And I, and I know at least, I think maybe on both days, but I did definitely uh, call out uh, that, that you were the one that told me about that stuff, Terry. And uh, people, people were pretty impressed by it. It's, it's but, my, uh, I buy them by the dozen. So I love them. I, uh, yeah. I love that, that, that stuff just because it's so accessible too, right? Like you can get it at the drugstore and like, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Dollar store, all kinds of places. Yeah. And then I, uh, um, like I, I had, I had like, f- uh, almost, I, I think my, my peak on Friday was 399 viewers, uh, at once nice. uh, peak concurrent. And I think Ooh, on Saturday nice. it was probably almost 300, like, th- or maybe 301. I was a little surprised. I kind of thought the numbers would be higher on Saturday than they would be on Friday. But I talked with a couple of people from, from board game geek and they're like, with the virtual cons, we're seeing more people tuning in on work days and not as much on weekends, which is kind of the opposite of like the normal conventions, which I get. You just turn it on while you're, you know, at, you know That's working. That's true. I watch a lot more YouTube during the week than I do on the weekends. Sure. Yeah. I, I suspect on Saturday people were, you know, mowing their lawns or whatever, that kind of thing. But yeah, it, it did. It went really well and it was fun. Um, so I did that. And then um, I built... Uh, some dumpsters and shipping containers, little, you know, uh, 28 millimeter scale ones from Reaper miniatures that I'm going to use for terrain, uh, you know, and I primed them on Sunday uh, with uh, some rattle can stuff uh, and they turned out great. Uh, but then there was a Reaper miniature, like the Reaper bones black, uh, you know, the line where it's like that more gray plastic instead of the white mm-hmm. plastic. It's not as bendy. You actually have to put them together usually. And it's this big, huge kind of ogre with like a skull head. And it's a really great little sculpt. And I, I saw it someplace online. And I, so I, I bought it. I ordered it from Reaper. And uh, the black that I used on it, I think, was an old can. And it just powdered it completely, just completely. Oh. It's like I can, I can brush it off, and with, but not really, you know. So I'm going to have to throw it in the solution and strip it to get the paint, the primer off it and start over, which is not that big of a deal. 
I always, you know, try to teach people that, you know, you can't ruin a model really. You just can st- it's just might have to strip it and start over, but it's not that big of a deal. But yeah, it was weird because I thought at first when I did it, I'm like, is it too humid? What's going on? But the, I, I did all those dumpsters at the same time that I used different colored um, uh, stuff. I used some Krylon camo. I used some army painter colors and they came out gorgeous. And just this can of black primer that I had, I think was maybe too old and it just powdered real bad. It's, so it's funny how those like, like the performance of like, especially the aerosols I find, but like just in general, like things, these things have an expiry date. Like this is this esoteric, like use me by, uh, after you open it, like yogurt, I guess. And, but we don't, yeah, we don't but I never see it on the, that. I never the can. Yeah. Like, yeah. I I, I've, I've never seen it on the can. Yeah. I, and it's funny. Cause like, I, cause I know for a fact, if I, if I see something, I'll spray something and I'll note, oh yeah, this can is kind of old. I'll think back on it. That's the moment where I reflect, but like. Maybe it's just like, I have opened it. This is the last time I used, like, this is the, the first time I used it. Like, write it with this, like, when you op- like when you make a jar of, like, pickles or something. And it's just like, I canned this mm-hmm. jam on this date. Maybe I've got to, like, right. Right. maybe you got to start dating your, your hobby products and being like, you know what? This paint's a little old. Or this I used to do, like, that do that with um, Tester's Dullcoat. When I bought Tester's yeah. Dullcoat, because I would, I would, because it would be so hard to find sometimes that if I was at, at the hobby store and they had it in mm-hmm. stock, I would buy a can just to have it. And then yeah. I would use a Sharpie and write on the label the date that I bought it. Just because sometimes I'd also pick up an older yeah. can when I meant, to, or, you know, you know, or yeah. something like that. Or I picked up the newer can and then the older can gets older and that kind of stuff. Yeah. I should do that with more of my paints, my sprays. Yeah, but I'm thinking this is a good idea. Yeah. 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 It's yeah. just, I was really surprised like how powdery it was. And I thought it was maybe, yeah. well, maybe it's a little humid, but the other ones all worked great. So I, I find I'll just throw like, it in the, LA's totally awesome and clean it off. Yeah. Which is awesome. I, I, is awesome. I just find that it's... It's a the more stuff that I try to prime at the same time, it's more likely that it's going to be a bad prime. Mm. <laughs> like if I'm prim- oh. priming just one thing, it's going to be fine. But then I'm oh, like, oh, I'm going to get yeah. like a whole bunch of stuff done today and get it all primed, and then I'm like, what the heck happened? And, yeah, yeah. Luckily, this was the only piece I was priming black. The other colors were all fine, like I said. But so yeah, if I would have decided to you know prime some of those other pieces black too with this stuff, it would have been just as bad. So I'm, I'm glad it was only one piece and it's not that big. I can I can strip it. So that'll be good. But anyway, that's what I've been doing. How about you, Terry? What have you been doing in your hobby stuff lately? Oh, my gosh. So uh, on the weekends in our household, we play board games. Like, that's we just mm-hmm. we play a lot of board games. Uh, we play a lot of licensed games because I have an 11-year-old daughter. Um, so we got some gaming in. Harry Potter, Hogwarts Battle is, like, a household favorite. We play it. Oh, I love that week. one. It's so much fun, especially with the kids. Just so much fun. Um, and then we put on, like, we put on the theme music. If it's, like... If it's nice enough, my my kid will like put on her Hogwarts, uh, her Hogwarts robes because uh, we mm-hmm. went to Universal oh. over the Christmas <laughs> last year. So she's got like a wand and everything. Yep. It's, like it's a whole thing. It's a little production. Um, nice. So we play a lot of board games just generally. Um, but we got a few games of that. We got some gaming in of like we usually play Unfair, which is by um, Good Games. Uh, they're they're mm-hmm. they. Okay. This is a game that was released initially by Simon. Uh, come on, I guess. Um, I don't know how they're pronouncing yep. their name anymore. I don't think they do either. No, no, it's right. probably changed since last week. So, yeah. Um, but they're like, but I think that the 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 publishing rights went back to the original developer, and so they they did their Kickstarter a year ago for more expansions, and we've been really enjoying that game. It's a really great engine building. It feels like an engine building game with a lot of take that, so it doesn't feel like a traditional Euro. Um, 
which a lot of like nice. Euro games, they tend to feel like solitaire. Like you're playing solitaire next to other people. That's not the kind of game that appeals to me. It's not the gamer that I am. So, so sure. Yeah. Get those games in. Um, mm -hmm. We, and we play, uh, we had uh, recently we played some, some Raiders of the North Sea, which is like probably one of, one of my favorite games that, Renegade, which is the company I work for, we can talk about that later, um, makes, because mm -hmm. it's just Vikings, right? I love Viking games. They're, they're fun. The, the art's really fun. So, um, yeah, we got some some board gaming in. I was, I looked at, so I ordered the uh, Rio Sonora terrain pack from War Cradle uh, for the game Wild West Texas. I'm not sure if you're mm -hmm. familiar with that game. They're, ha yeah, have you ever I was... built any of their MDF? Um, not the recent stuff. When the when the game was first originally launched before War Cradle had it, when it was um, I guess technically a battle foam, but they had they were under a different yeah, name yeah, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, battle foam. I yeah. I did have some of the uh, that terrain or not? Yeah, yeah some of yeah. the MDF terrain, but I haven't built any of the new stuff. So is this stuff is the Rio Sonora set is actually pre painted, so it's not even really. Yeah, it comes hmm. the first set that they had, which was uh, Red Oak. It, it was primed, it was primed this weird blue color. It, it, it was kind of a pain to work, but I love that MDF terrain set. Their, their MDF cutting, I got their first thing, which was like a distillery to the, like one of the most recent ones, which is like the cat house um, from that set. Mm -hmm. And like even the evolution between that first MDF cut set to the cat house is bananas. The cat house has the doors open. There's like a flippy door, like a doggy door style. Like the doors. Oh, wow fully open oh. it's like three layers the, the 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 layers open up like it's it's a definitely a it's an involved build as it for mdf terrain it's not like the easiest to build uh it takes a little bit sure. of doing but man the the terrain itself is just spectacular and the rio sonora set because it's painted is just like like once you've built it it's so beautiful all the layers open up. The roofs all open up on every one of the buildings. You put, you can fit models oh, nice. inside. Wild West Exodus um, wow. from the first, because I played the first version when Battlefoam had it to, to War Cradle now. Mm -hmm. I feel like the game is, it feels like, it reminds me of the things I love about Malifaux. Mm -hmm. um, but with dice, because <laughs> you still roll dice. And it's just really, it's a really sophisticated um, strategy game and it's full of characters so I'm, I'm a huge fan of that game so so building that train like building that that stuff is just it's joyous and it's fun and I I'm just I'm all about that like MDF now is like I don't know I, I feel like every every time every time I do something with with new stuff in the hobby in general I always feel like man kids kids these days don't know how good they have it <laughs> like <laughs> right yeah exactly they don't know how good they have it because it's just so. I mean, like when I when I so cool. when I first started trying to build like terrain from scratch, if you mm. wanted to make anything that looked even vaguely realistic and have like you know HVAC vents and pipes and things like that, it was all like straws and things that you could find in little doodads. But now there's tons of company out there that companies out there that make like resin, you know, like electrical boxes or vents or you know sewer grates and all these things to really make right. the scratch belt stuff look really awesome. And yeah, you're right, MDF has really gone a long way. I've been really happy with uh, the stuff that I've been getting from Deathray Designs too. Like they have a yeah, whole, it's called yeah. New Series. The new, it's, I think it's called New Series or New Ceres. Uh, it's a, uh, uh, basically it's like, it's like cyberpunk stuff. 
and you could use it for infinity oh, yeah, or you yeah, could yeah. use it for yeah it's just really nice I really yeah there's a whole very modular. like how they've designed it so that it hides all the the edges and it's amazing yeah. how how technical it's gotten and, and how much they can fit on a plank now too like it's yeah. kind of like there was that i remember the the period of time when games workshop went from like something happened in their technology and i remember it very distinctly when you looked at the old like it was like the lord of the rings there you looked at the old sprue and then suddenly like four years later the sprues looked like they were made by completely different companies because the amount they were able to stick on a sprue even the density just oh yeah went through the roof it feels like that with like, like MDF at, now yeah I mean, if you look at like the old uh like space marine scouts uh yeah. like sniper scout sprue there was so much space in between each piece you could nearly stick your arm through there and now you yeah. look at their newest stuff and they are tetris together so tight sometimes <laughs> it's hard to get clippers in there it's just like yeah, yeah it's it's it really, I mean, it helps them save plastic. It helps them save space. I get all that and it's, it's cool, but it's uh, yeah, it's definitely like a computer. I feel like they're getting a computer to get in there and figure out how to puzzle piece everything together to get the most efficiency and stuff. And I'm sure that that's happening now too with the laser cutting because they also have to think about how long the laser cuts. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like if it, if it takes longer for the laser to cut and like more lines, that means that they make fewer products per hour or whatever. Right. But if they share lines, a lot of that too. Yeah. They share lines, they can do it. Yeah. I've watched some stuff on that where, yeah, they showed like just by tweaking it, like uh, they cut down like um, it was like four pieces of plywood down to like three and cut the time in half just because Mm -hmm. like they, like the guy was like, uh, he did it himself going, oh, I think I did a pretty good job. And then they took it to a guy that like does it for a living. And he like, nope, you could do this, 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 and this. And then, yeah, just, and he's like, and I don't do this that often. I just kind of know some of the tricks. I'm just yeah. like, holy cow, there's a lot there. There's a lot. So there's that. And then I'm starting to work on, I've got a little pet project where I'm trying to kind of hack a formulation, like a homebrew version of contrast paints. So, mm. nice. um, yeah, so I'm seeing how that goes. I just, I, you know, for the bottle, the price per bottle, especially up here in Canada, like it's like a gut punch. So I'm like, I can't, I can't buy every color I want. Like, how can I, how can I replicate what this is doing that I like about it? And maybe like make some tweaks for my style that, that make it better for how I'm using this paint, um, for the purposes that I use like contrast paints for so that that yeah blend more with what i'm doing with it as opposed to like the prescribed methodology of it so yeah i'm seeing how that sure. goes i That's think cool. that there's a there's a well, I, I know that there is a, a youtube channel called Goobertown, and uh it, yeah his uh, he, his name is brent and he is uh, he's making great youtube videos and i swear he did a video not too long ago about how to make your own contrast paint and he's also awesome. a chemist, I believe. So oh. you might, you, that might be one of those things to take a look at, um, you know, yeah. just as like if you're, cause he's got like tips on, how, he does a lot of like great painting stuff and everything like that. Yeah. Um, and, and, but yeah, you definitely, I would check him out if you, if you get the chance. That's super but yeah, cool. So, yeah. No, I'm totally, cause like, yeah. I, I spent so much time in the art, fine art section, like art, mm-hmm. art supply shopping for this stuff. So I'm just like, this is all derived from kind of this stuff anyways. This is the stuff they're working with. So if there's if there's stuff out there that I can play with a little bit, maybe I can actually mix like interference paints into my contrast paints and see how that works as well. Because like that's what the, oh, yeah. the color shifts are. Because um, I've been seeing a lot of people like really enjoying effects that are created by interference paints these days, and 
those they're buying them in the bottle for miniature as miniature paint but like i don't know if there's as many people who are familiar with what what's out there in the fine art section that yeah is is that that miniature the miniature hobby has derived these products from right so color shift mm-hmm. paints are interference paints or or using interference to like bump up your metallics like i'm i'm, tr- I'm playing around with stuff so I, I i get into these modes every once in a while where i just play with stuff and figure out what i can do with it and what i can ask of my paint because i i find that that's a really interesting part of the hobby for me that i don't give myself as much time to do anymore but, yeah i mean experimentation yeah. i think is important you know absolutely yeah so yeah that's, that's what cool. i've been up cool to. yeah yeah nice all right well so um but we've got uh, Terry on the show today because we want to talk to her about a bunch of different things. Um, so um, how, when did you start and like what kind of got you into tabletop gaming generally? Um, so I, I got into, like, I, I tell the story a lot um, in terms of like miniature wargaming, how I got into miniature wargaming, because I think that that was the first foray into modern tabletop gaming as a hobby, right? Um, mm-hmm. But I... My father used to play chess on the streets of Manila for money. He was a hustler when he, mm-hmm. back back in the day in the Philippines. Okay. And he showed me how to play chess when I was five. Um, so that was like the first board game I ever played. And I, I, my, my father to this day still beats me. He taught my daughter how to play. Like this is like a thing. But, but that kind of set the seed, like the seed of like the culture of hobby games games and tabletop games and strategy gaming for me um personally and then um i ended up with with a partner who i eventually married um to to who who was into warhammer he got into warhammer at at 13 i think in the mall like everyone else kind of did at that in that era of this of a certain vintage you found your games workshop at your local mall or whatever and and he got Mm -hmm. in and then when i was living with him in university i found his his kind of hidden stash collection and um had been playing games this is like 2000 and uh, i want to say 2002 um holy okay. smokes i'm old <laughs> um and i started playing <laughs> i started playing uh yeah playing warhammer and ended up kind of on this trajectory i worked a uh, summer at games workshop in university and like we did all this like I, I i kind of got into it but like tabletop gaming when i tell people especially like in in the tabletop industry where it's dominated by board games i tell people no my first true modern hobby game was warhammer 40,000 they're just like whoa you kind of jumped in on the deep end and i'm like yeah yes, both feet yeah absolutely and it 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 changed the way i it it really did shape a lot of the 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 kinds of games i enjoy so the games because you know there's a strategy aspect of it there's the confrontation aspect of it both from like playing chess as a kid and then and then you know of course you know growing up we played like monopoly but i i think i play a monopoly that is different than every other person who's ever played monopoly with me outside of my family in that like Mm, it it is not just monopoly it's like cutthroat like emotionally manipulative and like there's like like it's just like yeah you know if you i remember my brother said once to me i was like i don't know 10 
And my brothers are 14 years older than me, so like one of my brothers is just like, yeah, if you want me to ever drive you to the mall again, you're going to make this trade. You're going to give me St. Charles Place. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I'm going to give okay, you this so... property. <laughs> like, it's, it's, it's a, it's a there whole There was real-life implications. <laughs> yeah, and so when right, I right. play Monopoly with my friends in high school for the first time, they're like, what game are you playing? And I don't want to play this game ever again. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so like, that, that kind of... that. That high, heavy confrontation games are, are games that I enjoy. Um, games with luck involved in it, like randomness. I I don't mind. Yeah. It. Like I'm, you know, in in the world of tabletop, there's kind of this spectrum, right? Where you have like the Euro game, which is you know a lot of modern board games are derived from this German style of game, and it's it. You're farming. It's like the themes are usually very peaceful because mm-hmm, Germany right. had a history of war and they don't like they don't like confrontation. They don't like luck. So it's like very, very like, you know, Carcassonne, like, you know, no dice, no nothing like that. And on yeah, the other in end Euro of the games, you see it is, a lot. That's true. On the other end of the spectrum is like the, the I guess, derogatorily or pejoratively, um, the term Ameritrash, the games that are like, war themed the games that are um luck based like risk is kind of like a really great example of what that heritage is like 30 years ago when you're in like board gaming that was the thing it was like you know Catan on one side and then risk on the other side Axis of the spectrum. and allies on the other yeah. yeah 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 so you had this whole spectrum um and i tend to to end up towards just because i'm a war gamer I think of myself, I identify myself as a miniature wargamer first. Um, mm-hmm. More towards that, like, luck-based, heavy confrontation kind of game. That's not to say I don't enjoy other games. Like, I love playing cooperative games with my family. I love playing, like, D&D. I like role-playing games. Um, but, like, that's kind of the spectrum I end up to. I don't like games. Like, if it's farming or if it's, like, economic based like um there's a game that that's out there designed by a really brilliant designer his name is uh emerson um uh emerson matsuchi he is uh he designed a game called century spice road and it was about Mm -hmm. it's just this economic engine the theme is like added on it's like you're supposed to be trading spices along the, the the spice road i i couldn't get into that game whatsoever they release a version that has the most cute golems like and like fairies and dwarves and instead of trading spices you're trading these little cute sparkly gems and all of a sudden same mechanics totally different theme i'm playing that game and i love that game i think it's like so delightful and so so much yeah i i i ended up getting that game uh we did it uh, one of the, it was one of the, like the tabletop days or something yeah. at a local store, and my son and I were like, I was like, oh, didn't really care for the like you said the the original game, and they're like, oh, it's basically the same game, just a different theme. I'm like, okay, and we started playing, it and like he really liked it, and then we brought it back and you know, and played with like other family members, like my wife and stuff, who aren't super big into board games, and mm-hmm. they all loved it. They're just like, all oh, these gems are amazing, you know. <laughs> Yeah, theming is amazing. How theme is theme is very very important. Absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, I think that like there's a, I think in in a lot of like games that are designed to be kind of like Euro games are they feel a little bit like solitaire. Nobody can mess up all the things that I'm doing. It's very mm-hmm. and it's very peaceful. Not there's not a lot of 
a lot of con- like interaction or confrontation. Um, the right. theme is used to make a game palatable for the mechanics, but I tend to find that for me, theme is is what I need to be immersed because of miniature wargaming, because the narrative, the story in my mind's eye is so important to me mm-hmm. when I'm playing a game that I want to I want to feel it and I want to see it. Um, and I just can't imagine planting farms and living with sheep and trading wood for cows. <laughs> right, yeah, the yeah. The same, yeah. like, with the same enthusiasm as I can, like, like you know, raiding, raiding outposts as a Viking or, or right. you know, that sort right. of thing. So, like, abs- that the abstraction yeah. and, and the blending of, yeah, of game, mechanics uh, matters. Viticulture? I don't know if you've played that yeah. one. Yeah. The mechanics it's, are really sound, and I I found I had fun playing it, but I have a hard time wanting to play it again because you're just growing wine grapes. <laughs> but yeah. I mean, I was just like the theme's just like oh, but and I would never play it if, if it hadn't been brought to the table, and I was convinced that it was a great game to play. And like I said, the mechanics I had fun playing it, but it, mm-hmm. I did not get driven to going. Oh, I definitely want to play this one again. I mean, I think what it is for me is like, so there's a term that's been thrown around a little bit in, in video games. And I don't think we really have developed the vocabulary when we talk about board games as much, but this idea of um, ludo narrative harmony or ludo narrative dissonance. And it's this concept that the theme of your game is reflected in the mechanics and the story of the game is reflected in the mechanics um, or not. Like, so some, some abstract games have the theme applied to it to make the components look beautiful and like it looks good, but the mechanics themselves are, they don't further the story or the theme or narrative in any way. There's, there's, a, there's a disconnect or an abstraction that just it doesn't matter. And there are mm. some games where it's like super super tied like so um uh, like it's like harry potter hogwarts battle like the it feels like everything every part of that game is built around that theme and everything that's Mm -hmm. happening mechanically drives that theme it's kind of like uh you know not to to show but power rangers is a game where i just like look at that the game itself and play that and i feel in that world because the mechanics feel like feel like that universe it 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 it, it ties together warhammer 40,000 is the same well, thing sure. the mechanics it was feel... made it, it was made for it yeah, yeah. you yeah. couldn't take the power rangers game uh like mechanics and then and apply that to growing wine grapes you know what yeah. i mean like that kind of yeah. thing like it's just not yeah it's, yeah it's and like from, the... so when you know rebuild rebuild like a lot of software and that's usually like uh, there's apps that are called like weight labels because you can basically mm-hmm. slap another uh, logo on in colors and have you know a nap for a different company but really the mechanics and look and everything is all the same versus you know yes. that app that was built directly for that company yeah so i mean i think yeah, that absolutely. that's part of that that whole process of like 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 i i my i know my own taste general that doesn't mean that i can't be I can't be convinced that there are other types of games out there that that are for me or aren't for me because mm-hmm. I think that also changes so much of what we do in terms of tabletop gaming as a whole is not just affected by like what our personal tastes are but how the people around us around the table impact the gameplay experience too. 
Um, oh, absolutely. And, yeah. And we're, we as humans are not static creatures. So that, that does evolve over time as well. So I where I am right now, I still like, I'm still very influenced by like games where the randomness makes sense to the, the theme and the mechanic. I'm still into games that have confrontation elements. I'm still into games that are, that are, um, obviously that have miniatures because i like that part of it. i love the, the thinginess and the the tangibility and i love mm-hmm. painting them um but i don't think that that doesn't mean i can't can't enjoy a game that is a little more abstract or a little more puzzly um if if i'm in the right mood with the right people yeah absolutely now when you when you first so when you and i first met uh, it was kind of through youtube and so yeah. you had a YouTube channel and you still do and, and, and everything. But um, as we kind of mentioned here, you've you've uh, gotten into the actual industry and you're working for Renegade Game Studios now. How long have you been working for Renegade? So I was working, I'm working for Renegade. Uh, this is, oh my gosh, like uh, I joined them in March of last year. Um, so I okay. left, before that I was with Geek and Sundry uh, working as a features mm-hmm. editor there. Um, for a couple years, and then before that, I was a contributor. I was a vlogger for them. Like, so I had been with Geek and Century in some capacity for for since since basically we first met back in twenty fifteen. Um, yeah. And then and then I I was just looking for for a change. Uh, online video was looking kind of unstable, and mm-hmm. I was looking at my work history and just going like. I don't know if I'm necessarily qualified to do much else other than talk about games for the next little while. Sure, yeah, yeah. Like over that journey, I had like I'd gotten a book deal and published a book on tabletop mm-hmm. gaming, like a survive. I like to call it a survival guide. It's like a etiquette meets tip book on like you know how to how to get into the hobby and how to find the games that you love and how to have like you know. I know this is kind of this dates the book a little bit, but how to have gaming nights with friends and dinner parties and stuff. Right. Um, yeah. No, I know. Right. What a what a strange time we live in. But the yeah, that, I agree. Like, I wrote I I wrote a book on that. I wrote a book, um, and that got published through a, a like a publishing house, um, Adams Media. So so like I have like an ISBN listing and stuff like that. That was a thing that happened. Um, nice. But yeah, so I ended up at Renegade because I was just like, I need to find a job, I guess, where I can continue to talk about games the way I've kind of have for the past past few years now. And so now yeah, I'm, yeah. Uh, and, and... I have like an official title um, as the senior marketing manager, but really it just means I get to, I get to still fangirl out about tabletop games on social media and content and, and then like you know talk to talk to people about games which is really fun yeah yeah and and like most well not most many uh tabletop gamers eventually at some point or another in their journey come across the idea of like well i should start working on making a game and things like that do does renegade like i don't i don't know a ton about like i know about making games a little bit i've i've done it in the past myself and mm-hmm. even self published some stuff but like with actual like big companies like renegade and things like that like do you guys do everything in house do you work with outside 
designers, you know, that kind of stuff? Or, or I mean, like, how does the process of like for a big company like you guys, like how does it, you know, kind of go from start to finish just, you know, at, at, at top level, at broad level and stuff like that? I think it's funny. Like we we publish a lot of games and I think that what happens is we get this this very strong, like the world around us gets a strong impression that um, the company's really big and we're not. It's mm-hmm. it's There's like maybe like 10, 12 of us on the core team. Um, and then we work with a lot of partners. We work with a lot of designers and artists and, um, you know, various contractors just to, to operate. Um, mm-hmm. Because like we have a, a really, we have, we have a lot of ambition and, but we, ha- and we have really talented people we work with to make these things happen. But ultimately it's, it's a very small lean team. Um, and we, I, I think it seems bigger to me by, by, by like for two reasons. One is, is because it's a small industry. So like yeah. eight to 10 people still seems kind of big within a small <laughs> industry, but I think it's also because the stuff that you guys put out seems like maybe it's coming from a bigger company. Like it's, it's, it's like high quality. It's like, you know what I mean? Like, right. I would have figured you had like, you know, a whole room of designers that you like, are, you <laughs> exactly, know, they're all yeah. toiling over yeah, and like having pitch meetings three times a day. And... It's, yeah, it's yeah, funny because like we have like, just to give you a little bit of insight. So we have, mm-hmm. um, we have one designer on staff. <laughs> um, that that okay. was Matt Hira. We, you know, he joined the team at the beginning of this year. This is, as we approach uh, August, that would be year six of Renegade. This company, um, wow. you know, was started. I think part of that, that refinement you're talking about. Um, so Scott Gaeta, who founded the company, uh, he has a huge pedigree. Um, from tabletop industry, he we used to work at Decipher. So if you if you played the Star Wars card game from like mm-hmm. the nineties, he yep. had his fingers on that. Like he did the World of Warcraft game with uh, Cryptozoic, mm-hmm. um, mm. uh, the the collectible card game. Like like, and he founded Cryptozoic. And so when he left Cryptozoic, he started Renegade. And so he brought a lot of that that industry knowledge, the industry connections. And the understanding of the industry, um, when he he when he founded the company, so a lot of that um, is is what you you're seeing now, right? You're seeing that experience, mm-hmm. and then a lot of the team members came with him from places like Cryptozoic, from Decipher. Um, so our games produ- senior games producer Dan Bojanowski, um, he came from from that that same kind of era, so he knows how to produce games and and. Uh, Sarah Erickson, our director of sales, came from Cryptozoic, working under Scott. So she she understands that, and she also runs a retail store. So she understands how how those things at every tier kind of play together, right? So we, we do a lot. Yeah, we are able nice. to, to to do a lot um, in terms of of designing games. Um, so Vampire the Masquerade, which is an upcoming game, we announced it last year at Gen Con. That's mm-hmm. a game that is designed in-house by Matt Hira. So he, he came from Cryptozoic. He's done like a whole bunch of uh, those, those expandable card games that you've, you know, chances are you, if you've played Pokemon or you've played, like he has this huge pedigree of card games. Um, so, so he's designing that, but for games like even like Power Rangers, here's the grid. Um, we work with great designers who are very immersed in the license. Um, yeah. So we we had mm. Jonathan Yang, who previously came from um, from Fantasy Flight, 
he does he was a co-designer for the doom board game and for star wars imperial assault um that's okay. he he came he was like he was in san diego which is where our offices are and he he'd been doing some freelancing stuff so a lot of designers in the industry work um on a like a freelance royalty basis and so that's that's how a lot of our designers like come to us um a lot of our other games like we one of our one of our best-selling games is a game called lanterns it's a very accessible tile laying kind of game that's really beautiful it lays out on the table very instagrammable is what i like to say um nice it's a game that initially launched uh by by a developer producer um under the the, the title foxtrot games and Foxtrot did it on Kickstarter. Scott saw the Kickstarter was like, I want to help you distribute that game. Like, we want to help market it. We want to sell it. Like, let's work together. Mm-hmm. So a lot of our titles are are in that same vein. So Raiders of the North Sea is like that as well, where we approached that designer who'd launched this really great Kickstarter. The game looked really good. We and and we we co-published those titles. So we have kind of one set of games which are like the Vampire the Masquerade, which are you know, designed in-house. Uh, we work with mm-hmm. artists and who freelance and, you know, build up the cards and art and, and that sort of thing under a creative director who is, is one of ours. And then we, you know, that's built in-house. And Power Rangers, you know, we have we have the license. We found a designer for it who freelanced and, and you know, works with us that, that capacity. Um, and that's one one style of game that we make and then we have partners who co-publish with us a lot of our role-playing games are like this as well where like kids on bikes teens in space um kids on bikes is an award-winning role-playing game system very accessible designed by a gentleman by the name of john gilmore now if you've played there are a lot of like uh games out there that have his name on them one of which is like dinosaur island um Mm -hmm. that's that's mm-hmm. one of his titles. So he he came in and uh, and he he co-wrote this this role-playing kind of structure um, that we've used on on a bunch of other games now um, with as an engine. Um, and he yeah. he comes from it from like kind of a different perspective. And we co-published that with our friends at Hunters Entertainment, um, which is like a, a, a role-playing. C- game development company so um so those are the kinds of games that we also do so there's a lot of different ways that we've taken on games we've published games it's it's always it's always different like um and 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 the process of getting a design in front of publishers these days just generally is a whole other thing but i think i think i think there are there are different ways into the industry now that there just wasn't before, right? So, well, nowadays you can get you can self-publish, and then maybe a company comes along after you've been doing that, and they're like, yeah. "Hey, we want to work with you and publish this, you know, and, and kick yeah. it up a notch or whatever, you know, as far as production value and things like that." And you couldn't really self-publish as easily, you know, right. back 10, 15, 20 years ago, easily. Yeah. It's, well, you can even see like the last five years with Kickstarters. Now that like. Oh, you know, absolutely. we were talking about 3D printers and stuff. Like now people are building their own miniatures and putting them into their own self-published games and, yeah. and printing on demand and stuff like that, that, you know, the quality has gone way up so that people can do, you know, realize their stuff and really give it a better foot versus, you know, a couple sketches and, and some notes in a notebook. 
I mean, yeah. I, th- yeah, I think there's a there's a place for that on everyone's shelf. Like games at every sort of tier. Like like I love indie games. I one of my favorite role playing games is like a a one page role playing game that was distributed for free. That's like you play, but you're a bunch of bears who are also burglars. That that's the premise. It's one yeah. page. Your I, bears. I was just talking about this. <laughs> yeah, like, we've talked about that game here on the on the show. Yeah, yeah I've, I've talked about it a few times. Yeah, I yeah, it was it's the most bizarre thing when I was pitched it, and it was one of the most fun I've things I've had. Yeah, like and there's a place for that, and then there's also a place for like these behemoth games that just would feel otherwise, like impractical like warhammer 40,000 i will always like there's always going to be a special place for it there's i don't think there's ever going to be a, a a way in the world that can have like new york time best-selling authors writing fiction for a game if it doesn't have that level of of clout right like oh absolutely it's, yeah. yeah it's not a it's not a it, it doesn't it doesn't have the the, the zeitgeistiest quality so i mean it, it's you know the the world of social media didn't make um, high production television entertainment go away. YouTube did not make the Netflix original obsolete, right? Everything just mm-hmm. kind of evolves, and it's the same in the industry now too. So I th- I think that I think that as as moving forward, if you're like an aspiring game designer or you're you're looking for ways to get into the industry, like that the world is changing so fast and then the industry as a result is also changing so fast that there's always going to be these new and novel ways to find opportunities if this is something you want to pursue. Mm. And yeah, there's not if, like a blueprint like there used to be of like, oh, you have to do this and then do this and then this. Now it's kind of a, yeah. everybody yeah. has their own. There's a, and, the, and there is a lot yeah. of change in, in the industry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What, what other kind of changes though would you like to see? I mean, I know there's been a lot of talk lately about um, diversity and inclusion um, within all types of, you know, uh, uh, tabletop gaming. Like what, I think that's honestly because like the technology is moving forward and all that kind of stuff. But I think it's the, to some degree, the attitudes and the people a little bit yeah. that we still need to maybe evolve a bit. I mean, I, it's when you are as immersed into a hobby. And I think uh, I know this both as a miniature war gamer, someone who's, you know, games are fan, and like, like whether that's like, you know, Xbox, Nintendo fanboy, like feuds, right? Like this is something that, that was such a subculture niche thing before, mm-hmm. but when it hits a certain tipping point, it stops. Right. So it's like, nobody is going to shame a switch owner. If you own a PlayStation, these days it's not like they're that that feud that existed like in the 90s or it's like nintendo sony Mm. that that seems so passe now um i i think that we need to get like i would love to see like the community get to that point and i think that it comes in a couple ways right like one of it it's gonna be you know when you think of what kind of person plays tabletop games what is the image that that comes to your mind. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't imagine someone who looks like me, you know, whether sure. that's like mm-hmm. a, a woman who's small and heavily tattooed and like, just like of color, um, like at a, at a certain point, we're going to have to realize like, no, like games are for everyone, but the industry also has to recognize that both like, like, as a as a gaming community where it's just like if if someone who 
doesn't look like they belong in the gaming store because you have this preconceived notion of what a gamer should look like or who a gamer is, what qualifies them as a gamer. Um, You know, as a community, we need to address that. And then on the other side, you know, when we look at creating games, marketing games, assuming a, a base level of knowledge of about games, when we teach games or write rule books or create art that represents the gamer because, you know, you're taking on the role of, say, a hero um, or that sort of thing, that also has to mm-hmm. change. We have to, th- we have to change our mindset and our approach to who we think uh, are go- is going to purchase buy enjoy this product right we we make luxury products the tabletop game industry is a luxury product industry it's weird to 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 hear it described as that because when we think of it as a as an identity product like it's different but Mm -hmm. like we don't think of we don't think of you know board games as like a Prada bank or whatever but this is what it right. is. Right, no, but it's not also to... either food or shelter or, yeah. or clothing, you know it's what I mean? It's not a yeah. necessity, right? Yeah, um, exactly. So this is a, it's a luxury product, but what happens is if we make an assumption about who buys luxury products as a whole, what the socioeconomics mm-hmm. are, what the, the personal identifiers of those people are, what the gender of those consumers yeah. are, we pigeonhole the potential base and consumer and and community and then if if you're if you are creating games targeted towards a particular audience it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy at that point right of course your community is going to reflect exactly who you targeted at because that that's who you made it for um right Right. so, so so that it has to kind of it it's like a chicken and egg scenario right like so so there's there's two ways like people still get into this hobby who do not look like the stereotypical expected person um and how we how we engage and how we address those and how we listen right like listen to those people who say hey i am someone who identifies as female even though the world saw me as like a man before this point. Mm-hmm. Like I, I identify sure. as a woman, for example. And I'll, this is, you know, just sh- through sheer numbers, in my experience, I have encountered, I played roller derby for like, God knows how long, uh, several years. And I know more trans women in miniature wargaming than I do from roller derby. Um, mm-hmm. Because of the sheer numbers. And when you listen to their experiences and you listen to the things that are just like not cool for them what happens to them when you listen to women who come into convention spaces and they say this is not welcoming or cool um like how we react to that as well like both as industry as you know from within the industry and as like fans ourselves like how how do we how do we hear someone if we if we can't if we're choosing not to hear them, we then intentionally create exclusion points and we intentionally mm-hmm. do not address their needs, right? Um, for them to be and a part it, it has of, to come of this from, hobby and community, right? 
Yeah, and it has to come from both angles, in my opinion, yeah. both from the community and also from the publishers. And we are starting to see, like, I, I again, I don't know a ton about uh, publishers and board gaming, but I know, like, within miniatures, you know, Games Workshop has been becoming, you know, leaning more into in- inclusion and trying to, uh, you know, show people of different races and different uh, genders and all kinds of different things like that on you know, in their, in their marketing on, on the actual materials and things on like that. On the boxes but and they, in the game, in the exactly. game. But and they like, can't do it by themselves. No, like they also I need mean, the community to step up as well. And I mean, I think that's also like, so I posted up a, a kind of like a public post on my Facebook page. And I said, Hey, mm-hmm. do you know any, like, any de- game designers who are of color in miniature war games because I want to diversify my collection. I want to see what they're making. I want I want to grow my collection mm-hmm. with this lens. I play one game that has a person of color on the designer credit, and that is Eric Lang's A Song of Ice and Fire. He is a co co designer, credited co designer of that game. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Nope. Like. Nobody else was able to give me like Lee uh, Gaddis recently just released rule like a rule set like um, from Gaddis Games who you you include on your show recently but like yeah mm-hmm. he's a friend one, of show, yeah. two like I couldn't mm-hmm. even get someone to tell me a person of color who worked within you know Games Workshop's design studio or like there mm-hmm. right. there's no there is. It's strange to me that that's where we're at, right? Like this is the place where we're at when it comes to to people of color, and of course, because of that, it creates an area where we're just nobody is intending to exclude. It just mm-hmm. we we just don't see that spot because it's it's not being thought of, right? So if if we have it's like this, a blind spot to some degree. It's, right. it's a block, right? We can't you you can't yeah, you can't yeah. know what you don't know. You cannot know what you don't know. And so like it, right. it also has to change. Like it's not that and I make this argument all the time. It's not that miniature wargaming is you know exclusively this this domain of of you know European descended heritage non non visibly minority like non racialized individuals like sure. that's not that's not that's not the space like there is Japanese written on games workshops packaging for a reason these they mm-hmm. you know there are markets and there are growing markets and if we're supposed to yeah. like from a capitalist perspective like I'm uh, this is an argument I make all the time, right? Diversity is good for you as a consumer. Diversity is good for you as a publisher. For the consumer, Absolutely. what it means right. is you get more of the game that you love because it continues to grow in popularity and be supported, right? The bigger something is, the more, the more you're going to get. Like, my dream is like the Gaunt's Goats HBO series. I want to see Gaunt's Ghosts on HBO. Mm-hmm. Like, make it real, sure. right? Um, that's not going to happen yeah, it, unless it, it, it hits a tipping point, and that has to include diversity. Right, exactly. Like comic books did with like reach that, Marvel right? movies. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know? and then on the on the publisher side, diversity makes sense to you because it grows your your potential consumer base. So, so it it's it's a double 
you know, it's a two-sided coin, right? It can't can't only come from one side or the other. And I think right. that mm-hmm. if you're a fan, you know, there are easy ways. It's It doesn't cost you much to be kind. It doesn't cost you anything to listen. It doesn't cost you anything to be welcoming. Um, and, I agree. Yeah. And that, right. That's easy. That's the easiest. That's the easiest stuff. Um, and it doesn't mm-hmm. it yeah. doesn't cost you anything to take at face value someone who says, "Yeah, no, I'm here to play games," um, and and assume that right, like just just say say yes, keep playing. Like like we're we're in a we're we're in a unique place where where these conversations are happening because we had you know we had creators of uh like content creators of color who were like hey you know are we going to are we going to make a statement are we going to be doing something um mm-hmm. you know at events like at big events like are you are you this isn't a, this isn't a political thing it and it doesn't have to be diversity i don't believe is a political issue this shouldn't need to be a political issue right like you know, no, it's a human issue. It's a, it's a human issue. Yeah. Like I, I was pretty sure that you know when we wrote the history books on World War Two, we we're like the racists are bad. <laughs> like we all right, collectively exactly, yeah. agreed to that, right? Like that the, yeah. the Nazis are bad. Um, so like we don't. Right, they're need... usually why this they're the bad guys in movies because there's nobody going. Right. Oh, you know they're. There were a lot of good. No, no there wasn't. No, no that's the point. <laughs> so it's, yeah. I don't think I don't think it is. I don't think that it has to be like it, I don't think it has to be this politicized issue. And I, I think I, 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 I tire of hearing like let's keep politics out of board gaming. And I'm just like, it's not political when you're talking about. Right. Hey, let's sell more product to more people. Like, or let's share yeah, this right. awesome hobby with more people. Like, that's not a political exactly. thing. And saying, hey, you know, it doesn't matter. You know, we shouldn't. Absolutely. We shouldn't have to validate uh, that that presence, right? Sure. So that that's where I'm at. So, I, I think that that's that's what I would. If there's one thing, so I'd if try I to change. So if somebody that's listening right now is like, yeah, no, you're right. I should be more inclusive. You know, maybe I'm not doing enough or saying something like what would you give them as an advice? Like, like how, like if they run a gaming group or they're just a gamer that just wants to see the community keep growing, you know, and wants to do the right thing. Like, what would you, do you have like some tips or some thoughts of like how they could do it from a personal level? You know, I, so I think that, one of the changes you have to 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 make it, it has to be inside it comes from within you right like you have to change the way that you approach the hobby and the idea that it is exclusively for you or only for you is something that i i like i find is where toxicity and fandoms just across the board, not just like miniature wargaming, not just tabletop gaming. Mm. The toxicity across the board comes from it's this idea that this is not for me, therefore it is not X. It is not Star Wars. It is not Star Trek. It is not mm. you know yeah. miniature wargame. It is not Warhammer. If it is not explicitly for you, it doesn't mean that it's not like it doesn't have against a place. You. Yeah, it's not right. against you, right? Um, because I think that. 
I think that sometimes, especially in in an industry, if you have a self fulfilling kind of marketing cycle where it's just like we're gonna make a game for this type of gamer they're gonna buy the game oh look our community is full of this type of gamer everything we make is for this type of gamer and then all of a sudden we realize oh we want to grow our market we're gonna not make something for this type of gamer this type of gamer who has been consistently marketed to catered to responded to feels like what the heck what what the hell is happening right like Right, right. And I, I understand that from a visceral level, but that doesn't mean that it's still not something that is good. It doesn't mean that it becomes less yours. The your investment is not invalidated, whether that's an, an emotional attachment or or anything beyond that. That doesn't make it less. Um so if you can let go of that idea and say, if it's not for me, it's not this, that opens you up to be more welcoming that opens you up to being more more open-minded to to other people's perspectives and it also allows you to validate the experiences of others within the hobby or as a whole in general to to make that space and your table more welcoming and i think that's really important and i think that you learn more from also spreading out and playing with different types of people as well. I mean, you learn stuff when you play tabletop games. That's one of the benefits. You learn about people. And I think that Mm -hmm. when you are playing against the same people over and over again, and this isn't even necessarily talking about, you know, race or anything. If you just play these games against these two other people that you always play against, that's your your three-person game group, Mm -hmm. that's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. But you would learn more about other styles of play and other types of people if you, you know, start maybe going to a convention or maybe, you know, spread out and go to a gaming club that plays that kind of stuff, you know, and then only playing against one type of person, let's say, as opposed to Mm -hmm. being open to playing to all people from all kinds of different experiences. It just makes a lot more sense in my mind. And like you said before, as a publisher, you know, to, to exclude a a portion of the, 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 the public to say, well, our game is not for you to buy because we're not, you know, making it focused towards, or it's not even necessarily not focused, it's just kind of almost exclusionary, then you're not going to sell to those people. And if you start from a place of this is marketed specifically to just these people, then when you do want to grow, you can't because then those people that you were marketing to will be like, hey, I thought you were marketing to me and now it seems like you're changing everything. So yeah, it is. It's the idea of like, you know, I don't necessarily think every every game has to be for every person, but I think there is a game for every Certainly. person out there, right? Um, so it like understanding the design perspective, but it does like I don't think that there is like there is a specific kind of person. I don't think there's anyone who who has who can say reasonably like this Euro game is designed for a person who looks like this. I don't think publishers are necessarily like thinking of it in those terms, but if you're not aware of like, okay, so are we, are we making it so that like, are we creating art, for example, that, that says, Hey, you know, it's okay. If you, you can see yourself in this world, if you look like this or this or this, Mm -hmm. that's fine. Like those little things, those are little signals that just say, Hey, you can see yourself in this game. You can see yourself in this world. And we were talking about like theme and the mat- how much it matters um, to 
to the gaming experience. And for me, it's just like, what that manifests for me is like, when there's a game with people, Asian people in it, if there's a miniature war game out there with Asian people in it, I automatically have to buy it. Just because that's a game I can see myself in. And there aren't a lot of Mm -hmm. fantasy worlds where I can see a person who looks like me in them. Um, so it ma- that that makes it a point to matter, and I don't I don't think that that's a I don't think that's necessarily a a, a personal decision, right? Like if I was to to go at it up to con and like open up a booth selling a game where it's just like, no, this is a no man's world. Literally, no men play this game. Like are in this world. I don't know if the sales will be that great. To to people who identify as men at Adepticon exactly, because they yeah. can't see themselves mm-hmm. in it. And sure. that's just that's just the 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 you know, that's just an that's an extreme example, but that's the kind of thing that that publishers should be thoughtful of, right? Like how can you you don't have to necessarily as the haters will say, like like force SJW stuff down my throat. No, that that's not what that that's about, right? It's just about like, mm-hmm. hey, can I make this game appealing and palatable to people across uh, various identities? Like where that where your identity does not matter to whether or not you will enjoy this game, and because you can still see yourself in it no matter what that identity is, and that that's something that I, I think that. Um, publishers who are looking to grow that's one way they can do that if they're looking to grow their audience base and grow their fan base that's really that's one easy it's an easy win too right yeah and like you said it doesn't really cost much so yeah yeah, that's i i i I agree i think that the uh, we definitely and i made a video about this kind of to some degree just recently on my youtube channel and and uh it's i think it's an important message and i think that the the industry can move in the right direction. I don't think it's going to be um, you know, difficult to do necessarily. And it'll just help to bring more people into the tabletop gaming hobby, not just not just miniatures, but not just board games, not just mm-hmm. magic cards and stuff like that, not not just RPGs, but, you know, across the board. So, mm-hmm. well, I've got uh, construction going on outside of my house. They're tearing up the driveway, so it's getting kind of noisy. But um, I really want to thank... Terry for coming in and talking with us about yeah thank you um, Terry yeah but like her experiences and uh, and all that kind of stuff and uh, I'm glad that uh, that there are people like you in the industry and I'm glad that I've known you for a long time and uh, it's always it's always fun to talk I mean we haven't been able to see each other at conventions for a bit but hopefully they'll get better eventually and we'll be able to talk face to face sometime soon thank you for having me on absolutely absolutely all right. Well, thanks again for listening to this episode of the Game 4 Podcast. If you've got questions or comments and you're watching on YouTube, please leave a, a comment below. If you're listening via your favorite podcast player or just aren't into the whole YouTube comment section thing, then you can feel free to reach out to us via email at podcast at imgame4.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And lastly, to find out more about the Game 4 platform designed to connect tabletop gamers, please check out our website at www.imgame4.com. That is www.iamgamefor.com. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.